Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you tuned in as Pastor Matt leads us in a study of God's Word. morning we continue our sermon series from the book of Matthew with Jesus in the capital city of Jerusalem just a few days from his crucifixion. By this time in the narrative his repeated rebuke of the religious leaders had brought their animosities to its absolute boiling point manifesting itself in plots to lay hands on him, seize him, destroy him and put him to death. And I suppose their plan would have moved along even quicker if it had not been for the common everyday people who were still quite enthralled with Christ and his teaching. In an attempt to sway that popular opinion, representatives of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes tried to trap Jesus by placing him at the center of culture's greatest controversies. So in rather quick succession, Jesus was asked to settle a debate about Roman taxes, issue a statement about resurrection from the dead, and summarize the entirety of the Hebraic law. Regardless of his answers, his opponents figured, his response would bring him into conflict with the people, the government, and the theological authorities presiding at the time. But as was so often the case, These men drastically underestimated Christ Jesus. So while they attempted to shame and discredit him, these leaders found themselves convicted by a lack of wisdom, understanding, and devotion to the Lord. So thoroughly had Jesus rebuked them. Well, they dared not humiliate themselves any further. And so after all their trappings had failed, no one ventured to ask him anything more. Indeed, their time to speak was over. Now they're going to listen. Listen to the words of Christ. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 22. and Follow along as we listen in. To Christ's teaching, beginning in verse 41. Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, Then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. 
Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. Respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But not be called rabbi. For one is your teacher and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father. For one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. Well, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. May God bless the reading of his word. Throughout Jesus' teaching ministry, we have heard any number of references to this notion of greatness. Not long ago, it was the disciples who were jockeying for that number one position in the kingdom. Here, it's the scribes and Pharisees clamoring to be first chair. We're the most learned. We're the most religious. We're the most deserving of praise and esteem. That was their continual boast among the people. But it was a boast of ignorance. One Jesus was about to correct by teaching them a thing or two about greatness. First, we are made to recognize that Jesus is the greatest of all sons. Take a look back at verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he only his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Jesus begins this new teaching session by asking the religious leaders a simple and straightforward question. What do you think about the Christ? Particularly, whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. That would have been the expected response from the Jewish people who were well-versed in the Old Testament prophecies, which allude to a deliverer from the line of David. Isaiah writes about a prince of peace who will rule on the throne of David to establish and uphold his kingdom forever. The Lord declares in Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. 
The people shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. I have made a covenant with my chosen, God says in Psalm 89. I've sworn to David my servant, I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. That's what the Jewish people were looking for. That's what they awaited in the days of exile. It's what they hoped in while listening to their prophets. It's who they expected would come to save them one day. A man who would look like David. A man who would act like David. A man who would rule in the same way that David ruled. Truly, they were looking for David's son. That is one of his descendants. And why not? For not only did this seem to be the promised intention of God, repeated them over and over throughout the generations, it would mean a tremendous improvement for the Hebrew people. See, David was Israel's most illustrious king. He extended national boundaries, established a great military presence, provided for the common people, and brought respect for them on the international stage. Without exception, the Jews regarded the reign of David as the golden age of Israel. But of course, the golden age didn't last. After his son Solomon took over with mixed reviews, the kingdom that was David's became divided. Life was in turmoil. Enemies ravaged their land. They were taken back into captivity, and now they were subject to imperial Rome. Isn't it true, friends, that when things are bleak, we tend to dream of yesteryear? So too did the Jewish people who longed for a return to the prominence and the prosperity and the independence that they enjoyed under their favorite king. That's what they were fully expecting. That just as God had promised, another David was going to come. And already we've seen that expectation expressed in the direction of Jesus. Back in chapter 20, for example, we saw two blind men on the side of the road who cried out to him, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. At the triumphal entry of chapter 21, the crowds were saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And again in the temple, the children were hailing him as the son of their beloved king. Any number of times in the gospel record, people came asking if he was David's son. Because that was the hope ingrained in the minds of the Jewish people. And despite the disputes that many of their factions held, that was one thing upon which every one of them could agree. That the Messiah, the anointed one, their Christ, would be a human descendant of David. And while that is the truth about Jesus, Jesus is about to tell them it's not the whole truth about Jesus. For how can you say this Messiah is David's son only 
when David himself acknowledged the Messiah as his Lord. As brilliant as these scholars were, it seems the scribes have missed something in regard to this Savior's identity. And it's the same thing that many of us still miss today. Believing that Christ is nothing more than a man. Yeah, a good man, a strong man, a wise and powerful man, but still only a man. Fully of earthly influence, maybe, but empty of anything divine. Like the typical skeptic in the modern age, first century Jews had a very limited view of their deliverer. But if he were only a man, as they surmised, how could the great King David, under the power of the Holy Spirit, refer to him using the word Adonai, the mighty one, the sovereign one, the Lord my God? Here, Jesus is quoting Psalm 110. A psalm in which David clearly spoke of the coming Messiah as his own superior and Yahweh's equal. Interestingly enough, this psalm is the portion of the Old Testament most frequently quoted in the New because of its importance in forming our view of the coming Christ. Contrary to their well-established beliefs, the Messiah who was coming to rescue them was not man only, but also God. A reality that points us back once again to the miracle of the incarnation and the person of Jesus Christ. A descendant of David in human terms and the Lord of David on the throne of heaven. It's a fascinating teaching. And the people greatly enjoyed listening to it as the parallel accounts make clear. But it's not enough just to be enthralled by these words. No, you've got to be transformed by this reality. How many of the men and women in that original audience fell on their faces and worshipped the God-man Jesus after hearing the thing he just said. Well, never mind the original audience. How many of us fall on our knees at the thought of this today? Not nearly enough. No, just like those living in first century Jerusalem, we nod our heads in approval when these things are spoken and we go on about our day as though nothing has changed. But what if, as a church, we actually lay hold of these truths? What if we turned our hearts to acknowledge his greatness what if we lived our lives to actually honor the Son? Huh? As Christ's teaching takes center stage, we learn that Jesus is the greatest of all sons. 
The Pharisees, on the other hand, well, they made themselves out to be the greatest of all men. Take a look at chapter 23, verse 1. Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they brought in their phylacteries and lengthened the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. Respectful greetings in the marketplaces. I mean called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, Jesus says. For one is your teacher and you are all brothers under him. Do not call anyone on earth your father. For one is your father. That is he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant, or whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Sometime during the intertestamental period, those 400 years between the close of the Old Testament and the onset of the New Greek culture gained an ever-expanding and ever-pervasive influence on the Jewish people. Their understanding of and obedience to the law of God had become greatly compromised, choosing instead to follow the Hellenized secularism of the masses. In response a group of pious and devout Jews attempted to renew the national interest in the Holy Scriptures. And eventually that effort resulted in the creation of two offices, if you will. The scribes and the Pharisees. And they were extremely well-respected men. Those who had dedicated their lives to understanding Interpreting and applying God's word. But it didn't take long for these curators of scripture to get a bit too full of themselves. Taking even the simplest of things to the extreme in order to be noticed. That's what Jesus was pointing out in his indictment here. Their overly ostentatious displays of piety. Like the way they purposefully oversized their phylacteries, as one example. Phylacteries were small leather boxes that contained passages of scripture. Worn by Jewish men on their arm or their forehead as a reminder to keep the law. It was a literal fulfillment of Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 18, where God commands the Hebrew people to impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. I'm not sure God ever meant that instruction to be taken literally, but I wouldn't argue if they interpreted it that way. 
Carry a sign in your hand. Wear a box on your forehead, if that's your personal conviction. That wasn't the problem. The problem was the scribes and Pharisees were going overboard with the size of these things to show everybody else in the room that they were the most righteous of all. They did the same thing with the tassels on their robes, making them longer and longer and longer in an attempt to outdo each other and impress everyone else. In addition to those issues, they expected to be greeted ceremonially with titles like rabbi, father, or teacher preceding their name. They coveted the prize seat in worship on an elevated platform above everyone else in the congregation. They wanted to sit at the head of the table, even when they were guests in another man's home. And they offered absurdly long prayers in the marketplace. So people would hear them and applaud their outstanding performance. There's no doubt the scribes and the Pharisees thought they were the thing. The height of their arrogance was recorded in the Jewish Mishnah, the collection of the oral laws, which declares it more culpable to transgress the words of the scribes than those written by Moses in the Torah. There is great danger, friends, in taking such a lofty position. There's great danger in thinking so highly of oneself. There is great danger in performing religious service to be honored and revered by men. There's great danger in that. And great futility. For the scribes and Pharisees of Judaism. And for men and women of the church. For as Paul said in Galatians chapter 1 verse 10. If I were still trying to please men. I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Think about that for a second, church. Think about that. How many of us are still trying to make much of ourselves? How many of us are still striving to gain recognition for our efforts? How many of us are still worried about making friends, being popular? Assuring that we are well-liked. If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. No, I would be exalting myself over him. Just like the scribes and Pharisees did before me.
Do you see? Now, there's no doubt Jesus is the greatest of all sons. The Pharisees made themselves out to be the greatest of all men. When in reality, they were greatest of all hypocrites. Take a look now at verse 13. As Jesus continues his indictment, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men. Which is more important? The gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, you say. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men. Which is more important? The offering or the altar that sanctifies the altering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he says again in verse 23. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. You say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Well, friends, don't like this small textual variant of verse 14 throw you. 
For though that verse does not appear in the earliest and best manuscripts of Matthew's gospel, the sentiment being expressed here remains perfectly clear. Time will not allow us to explore all of the particulars, but essentially there are two reasons Jesus pronounces doom upon the scribes and the Pharisees. They are hypocrites, mentioned six times in the text, and they are blind guides, which is mentioned twice. It seems the men who were given charge over the theological education of the people, who were responsible for helping others to live out the word, had no real interest in living out the word themselves. The big boxes on their forehead meant absolutely nothing. The 10-foot-long tassel on their robe Purely for show. They had no desire to be inwardly what they spent all of this time purporting to be outwardly, which by definition makes them hypocrites, actors, and frauds. It's not about washing your hands ceremonially before you eat. It's not about knowing the word of God well enough to find a loophole. It's not about a self-righteous external facade. It's about the righteousness of Christ transforming you from the inside out. For God sees not as man sees... Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So I wonder, when he does look at your heart, what is it that he sees? Someone who is truly and wholly committed to the Lord? Or one who has been faking that to impress other people. I mean, if that's where you are, friend, Jesus would say the same thing to you as he did these religious leaders of the first century. Woe and beware. Because that Hypocritical falsification of faith does not end well. Nor does blind and faulty leadership. I mean, that's the second part of this indictment where Jesus calls the scribes and Pharisees blind guides who continually point others in the wrong direction and lead them astray. One of the ways they did that was in the misappropriation of vows. God said, don't make a vow to the Lord lest you intend to keep it. The scribes and Pharisees told the men and women of Israel that if you only swore your oath by the temple, you don't have any real obligation any longer. 
Only if you place your hand on the treasury gold, because that is so much more valuable. Rather than lead others in the way of godliness, you say. They showed people all the loopholes to avoid real righteousness. I mean, truly, this is a case of the blind leading the blind. And as Jesus made clear back in Matthew chapter 15, whenever that happens, both will fall into a pit. As Christ assesses the situation before him, that's what he sees. And sadly, not a whole lot has changed in that regard. Surely there are still those among us who dress to gain attention. People in the religious community who love to be called right reverend, the most high bishops, your holiness, if you please. Still today, there are those who love the spotlight, make a show of their faith, take advantage of others in the name of Christ Jesus. Surely, there are those who claim church membership but lead others into more and more sin every day. And no matter what century you find yourself, still the word is beware. For as John Calvin once said, there is nothing God more abominates than when men endeavor to adorn themselves by external appearance rather than the integrity of heart. Are you there? Jesus is the greatest of all sons. The Pharisees made themselves out to be the greatest of all men, when in reality, they were the greatest of all hypocrites. And as such, they will incur the greatest of all judgments. Take a look at verse 34. Therefore, Jesus, behold, he says, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you, talking to the scribes and Pharisees, upon you may fall guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. In addition to the sentence of hell that Jesus mentioned back in verse 33, Jesus assures us that these scribes, these Pharisees, these hypocritical and blind leaders of men will receive a greater condemnation. Like his curse of the fig tree. Jesus is enraged by the fact that men would give the outward appearance of righteousness while bearing no fruit of the faith that they claimed as their own. But 
there's still more to it than just that. I mean, the reason Jesus speaks so strongly against them is not only because of their personal hypocrisies, but also because of the extreme disaster that false teachers bring to people's souls. Back in verse 15, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, that is, convert to the faith. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Because of their insincerity, they were leading men away from the truth of God's word. Convincing people that the broad way of destruction was actually the narrow way that saves. And unlike so many in modern Christendom who have become quite comfortable with those kinds of heresies, Jesus had zero tolerance for such things. And we should have zero tolerance also. Friends, this truly is the burden of my heart because I know the kind of teaching that is out there. And I tremble at the thought that I will be held responsible for every word that I have spoken in this place. Imagine, that's why James advised that not many of you become teachers. Knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment than everyone else. For everything that we say, everything that we do, and everything that we choose not to. It's a sobering reality that those who know the truth and do not live it will receive a more severe punishment than those who never heard the truth at all. It's a sobering reality. But it is reality. Surely that's why Jesus promises to rain such incredible judgment down upon the scribes and the Pharisees. They've made much of themselves instead of Jesus. They've led others down their path rather than the righteous path of God. And they've violently opposed every single voice of correction. It seems of all their offenses, that one is the final straw. That as the Lord sent prophets and wise men to call them on their sin, set them back in the right direction, they persecuted some, beat others, and killed even more. Not only is this a past tense reference to those Old Testament voices mistreated by Israel's forefathers, this is an allusion to what 2,000 years ago would have been current day events. Like John the Baptist, who had just then 
been executed. Surely, this is an allusion to the apostles who were about to be martyred in the years to come. Ultimately, this allusion includes Christ Jesus himself, whose crucifixion would occur just 48 hours from when he was speaking. These atrocities are so egregious, the weight so severe, that Jesus lays all the righteous blood ever shed on earth directly at the feet of these scribes and Pharisees. From the first righteous martyr to the last, he tells them. From stem to stern, from Abel to Zechariah and even beyond. The Jewish religious authorities killed the people that God sent to speak his word because in their heart of hearts, they did not want to be ruled by him. And for that, friends, there is hell and worse to pay. As the writer of Hebrews would later affirm, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Now for all of their posing, all of their posturing, all of their pretension, things just got very real for the leaders of Israel. And just in case they missed the immediacy in Christ's voice, he tells them that all these judgments will fall on this generation. Of course, many people want to debate the meaning of that term, but the overwhelming testimony of Jewish interpreters Language scholars and common sense theologians agree that this generation means just what it says. Referring to a group of people within a period of about 40 years from when Jesus was speaking. He was not talking about some eschatological judgment that would one day come down heavy upon their descendants 2,000 years or more into the future. We all like to push things off in that direction so we don't have to deal with them. But that's not what Jesus says. He looks at these scribes and these Pharisees after telling them the truth about their spiritual condition. And he says, this is coming down on you. 
Imagine that's what John the Baptist meant when he said back in Matthew chapter 3 already. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. It's happening. And for these men, it's happening quick. Because just as Christ is about to be crucified, so wrath is about to come. Huh? Jesus is the greatest of all sons. Pharisees made themselves out to be the greatest of all men. In reality, they were the greatest of all hypocrites. And as such, they will incur the greatest of all judgments. We need to learn from them. So as never to repeat their same fraudulent, Christ-defiant, and hell-bound errors. Yeah? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are sobered by these passages in Scripture that point out so many of the flaws in the men of faith before. But Lord, in addition to being sobered, let us be cautioned. Lord, let us look to these things and learn from their example. Because sadly, so many still today are repeating these same grievous things. I pray, Lord, you would rid this place of pretension. Lord, that you would wash a great humility over every one of us. That we would humble ourselves and exalt only you and your son Jesus in this place. Let that be true of our worship. Let that be true in our fellowship. Let that be true in our lives lives outside this place. That you would always take the place of preeminence. That we'd see you high and lifted up and not we ourselves. Lord, help us to stay true to the faith. For we have tasted and seen. Let us not go astray now to our own devices. But see you in all your glory, in all your splendor, in all your worth. Thank you for the word of caution. May we heed it now. In Jesus' name, amen. We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again if you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose or want to connect with Pastor Matt. Come worship with us at 9.30 every Sunday along Lake Avenue. 